chapter 2, and James will be speaking on this later tonight. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. A little insight into the lounge room at home. Well, tonight we're continuing on our series in Hunger for God, and we're continuing to look at the book of Psalms. Now, I'm a Victorian, and I don't know about you, but I don't really like rugby that much. Good. I don't really like rugby that much, and um, I don't know about you, but I've been following the news, and I've just been given a whole lot more reasons not to like rugby in the last week or so. I don't like union either because they go to private school. But anyway, <laughs> I've just been given a lot more reasons not to like rugby. If you've been following the news, you would have seen all the allegations coming out about uh, systemic sexual abuse, allegations of rape, allegations of violence against women by all sorts of rugby players, by all sorts of numbers of rugby players. One of the men implicated to have allegedly been involved is Matthew Johns, a, a prominent, well-known, well-respected uh, TV personality and former rugby player. I saw a, a rugby coach on TV the other night saying that he knew that rugby players were engaging in the practices they were engaging in, and he said that he didn't stop it because it was good for team bonding. Can you imagine where we get to when we think that what's been happening is good for bonding. How bad is our world getting when it gets to this? Our world's view of sexuality is just totally messed up. But the problem isn't just out there with the rugby. As we saw in the skit that we just watched, this mixed up view of sex often gets into our lives as well. You only have to log on to Facebook or get on your computer to be tempted to get in and indulge in a mixed up view of sexuality. We can be easily involved in our world's mixed up view in sexuality. 
So with all this in mind, how can we hunger for God no matter how bad our world gets? And how can we hunger for God no matter how bad our world's view of sexuality gets? Well, tonight we're going to look at Psalm 2. We're going to go through Psalm 2 and see what God's got to say about this problem. And as we do this, we're also going to look at Colossians chapter 1. So if you keep your fingers in Psalm 2 and Colossians 1, you'll be well prepared for our excursions this evening. How can we hunger for God no matter how, much, how badly our world is messed up, no matter how bad our world gets, and no matter how bad our world's view of sexuality gets? But before we get into it, let's uh, get to know our guest tonight. Let's have a look at Psalm 2 and get to know Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is an introduction psalm. It uh, forms a combo deal with Psalm 1 and it introduces the key theme of the whole book of Psalms. Psalm 1 gives us an outline of what God expects from the man who wants to be blessed. And it gives us a reassurance that God will uh, watch over or protect the way of that man. And that all those who oppose God will be destroyed. Psalm 1 points us to the man who is truly blessed. And then Psalm 2 tells us who that man is. Psalm 2 tells us that God has appointed a king who rules the nations. It tells us of a man who has been blessed by God. Psalm 2 then shows us how we can share in the blessings of the man who is king. So the spiritual background of Psalm 2 is a background of blessing. And the historical background of Psalm 2 has to do with blessing as well, but it's about the blessing of the king. Psalm 2 is all about a lavish coronation ceremony for the king. Psalm 2 is the music that was written and the music that would have been sung on the day the king was crowned. Now, I don't know about you, but um, some of you might be old enough to remember uh, seeing the Queen, QE2, crowned Queen of England and the rest of the Commonwealth. And you remember the huge cathedral, you remember the royal robes, you remember the crowds lining the streets, waving Union Jacks, you remember that enormous big carriage that looked like something out of a fairy tale with all the white horses pulling it and the men in big funny hats marching along and all the jazz that goes with the coronation of a royal uh, king or queen. Well, that's what Psalm 2 is. Psalm 2 is about the crowning of the king. It was written and sung for the king. So as we go through Psalm 2 tonight, bear in mind that this is talking about a royal occasion. This is a big deal. Psalm 2 is on about something big and something important. And Psalm 2 is also a structured psalm. It's a pattern. It has a pattern. Just like all the psalms, it has a pattern and a theme. It's like a cornetto. There's no boring bits. Each psalm is a poem and a song. And Psalm 2 is the same. It's broken into four chunks, three verses each. So as we go through uh, Psalm 2 tonight, we'll be looking at it three verses at a time. So, uh, verses 1 to 3 are a lament. They're a lament at the rebellion of the people of the world. Verses 4, 5 and 6 are in praise of God's response to the rebellion of the world. The next three verses, 7, 8 and 9, are a bit like the director's commentary. And then the last three verses are a warning and guidance to those who want to be blessed. So spiritually, the psalm is all about blessing. And historically, it's all about coronation 
It's about a big event for the king. And structurally, three verses each, four chunks. So how do we hunger for God, no matter how bad our world gets? Verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot? Why do they take their stand against God and against his king? The lament cries out, why do people think they rule the world? Why do people rebel against God's king? Can you hear the pain as the writer cries out? Can you identify with the pain as the people's world goes crazy? Can you hear the suffering and the pain that it causes when people think that they should be in control? This is nothing new. God's people were surrounded by hostile uh, people around them ever since the beginning of Old Testament times. Um, David, David had to battle just to secure the kingdom. He had to battle against heaps and heaps of enemies. In fact, even just to get to Jerusalem, he had to defeat a hostile people group that had captured and were holding the city of Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, we read about how David fought against the Jebusites who were occupying the city of Jerusalem so that he could be installed on the throne. He had to fight a war just to get to the throne. And then further on in the Bible, in Acts chapter 4, when the new believers, the new Christians, were being persecuted by the authorities in Jerusalem for their Christian faith, and they were being thrown in jail, and they were being beaten, and they were being whipped. One day, in Acts chapter 4, we read about how a group of them just got let out of jail. They'd just been released from prison, and some of them got together, and they cried out to God, And they cried out to God, verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 2. They said, why did the Gentiles rage against God? Why do they rage against you? The new believers wanted to know why Herod and Pilate and the Jewish leaders and the Roman people of the time had been allowed to crucify Jesus and persecute his followers. Why do the people rage against God? So against this backdrop of struggle and violence, the lament goes up. Why, God, do people think that they rule the world? Why do people think that they can either ignore God or rage against him? But the question still applies today. In the thousands of years that have passed since Psalm 2 was written, not much has changed. I mean, we've only got to take a look around us today and see how selfish our society has become. How selfish we as a nation have become. We are so tempted to keep everything for ourselves. And we want to get more, more, more stuff so that we can have a better, better, better life. It's because we bought the lie that it's better to receive than to give. It's better to get than to give. Our culture says this to us every day and it slowly creeps in to the church, into our lives as well. And there's heaps of other ways that we all um, can rage against God and there's heaps of other ways that society rages against God. We can be greedy, lazy, selfish, angry. Uh, Sometimes rebellion against God comes out in the way we shop. We might buy more more shoes than we need because we think that'll make us happier. 
Or we might be selfish with our time on the weekend and spend all our free time on ourselves. And it's easy to look at all this and look at the state of our world and conclude, like the psalmist, that the world is going crazy. People are out to rage against God. But Colossians 1 reminds us that we are also rebellious against God's King. Colossians is written to a bunch of Christians and Paul reminds them that they too were alienated, hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. That's in uh, chapter 1, verse 21. Paul reminds them, the Christians, that they once were also alienated, hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. We're a bunch of rebels and we want to control our lives. We don't want God or his king to have control. And just like rugby players, one of the common areas that Christians show their rebellion is in their sexuality. You see, we don't want God's king to have control of sex. We want control of sex. Let me tell you about me. Um, I moved out of home when I was about 18 and I went to university. Uni was fun. I had a great time. I went to a church, found a church home. I went there regularly, most Sundays, and I got involved in heaps of Christian stuff. It was great. But during my uni years, I also used to spend time looking at porn. It was my little secret that no one else knew about. It was just between me and my computer. Back then, when I didn't want to let God be in control, I wanted to be the king of my sexuality. So for a few years before I gave it to Jesus, I had this little porn secret eating me up inside. And basically, porn boils down to us taking control of our sexuality. Pornography allows us to get sex when, where, and how we want it. Pornography is us rebelling against God's king. So if you've been looking at porn, you're in the same boat as the people in Psalm 2. But rebellion and sexuality also comes in a lot of other ways, not just pornography. It may be that you're dressing up or down to draw attention to your body when you go out as a way of getting attention. It could be that you're harbouring fantasies about someone or lustful feelings about a friend. Uh, it could be that you're going too far with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Or for you, it might even be sex before marriage. Sex before marriage or sex outside of marriage is a bigger problem in the church than we would like to admit. It's a serious problem. Sex before marriage or sex outside of marriage is a form of rebellion because it ignores God's good standard of sexuality within marriage. It's our way of telling the king that we know what's best for our relationship and that the king can just butt out. If this is you, then you're in the same boat as the people in Psalm 2. Like I once was at uni, you're rebelling against the king. And just like the people of Psalm 2, you want control. Because deep down inside, we're always tempted to break the chains and take control of our lives. We are tempted to rebel against God's king. Psalm 2 tells us we're rebellious people and we reject God's king 
But the good news is that God has acted. The good news is that God has done something to rectify this. The next section, verses 4, 5 and 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God has acted to restore his power. And this is shown by two things that God does. Firstly, God laughs. God laughs at people who think they rule the world. Have you seen the, uh, the Madagascar movies? Madagascar 1, Madagascar 2, you know, Alex the Lion and Marty the Zebra and Melman and Gloria and the, those penguins, which are just awesome. I love them. And they all go to Africa by mistake from the New York Zoo. Do you remember King Julian? I like to move it, move it. Look at me, I'm a lady. King Julian thought he was a pretty big king. He thought he was okay until he met Alex the Lion. Alex was all of a sudden the real king. And King Julian suddenly looked like a bit of an idiot in comparison to Alex. This is like what's happening with God. God laughs at the stupidity of people like King Julian who think they rule the world when really they don't. Suddenly, the people of Earth look like silly little lemur kings in comparison to Alex the lion, the real king. God laughs at people who think they are king. God is personally acting in response to people's rebellion. God is personally involved. God is personally and he's personally involved in our rebellion. And secondly, God has set his king in Zion to fix the problem. So who is the king? And where is Zion? Well, in the immediate context of the Old Testament and at the coronation of the Israelite king, because remember this is a coronation psalm, the king is David. And Zion is the city of Jerusalem that David had to win from the Jebusites. And in 2 Samuel chapter 5 again, we're told how David defeated the Jebusites and he took the city of Zion and he was crowned as king of all Israel. So in the historical context, Psalm 2 tells us that God has set King David to rule from the city of Jerusalem. But David also points us to someone more important. When we put on our New Testament goggles, we can see that God's king is someone bigger than David and that Zion is somewhere bigger than the city of Jerusalem. When we look at the director's commentary in a few moments, we can see that God's ultimate king is Jesus. And we can see that King Jesus rules the world from heaven. So in our life today, the king is Jesus. And Jesus is crowned in heaven. God has responded personally to our rebellion and God has set Jesus as king in heaven. But what exactly is Jesus like? What sort of king is he? And what does he do as king? Well, let's move on to the next three verses. <clears throat> I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron 
and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, I don't know about you, um, but if you're from New South Wales, these verses might be a bit hard to understand. I'm from Victoria and they're hard for me to understand too, so don't worry. They seem to have been copied and pasted here out of another document and it's like someone forgot to edit Psalm 2 before it went to press. Uh, Who is speaking here? Who is telling this decree and who is the Lord and who is the Son and what is going on? Well, up until now, Psalm 2 has been a narrative. It's been a story telling us of our rebellion and God's response. But now things change. Verses 7, 8 and 9 are actually a conversation between God and the king. The king is speaking and is relaying what God has said to him. It's a bit like if you've ever watched a movie with the director's commentary on. You'll understand this. I personally don't like it. But if you turn on the director's commentary when you watch a movie, not only do you get to see what's happening in the movie, but you get to hear the story of why things happen and you get insights into the characters in the story and why they do things like they do from the man who wrote the story or the woman who wrote the story. And verses 7, 8 and 9 are a bit like the director's commentary to Psalm 2. They provide us with insight into who the king is and what he is like. So let's have a look. Verses 7, 8 and 9. God has said to the king that the king is God's son and that if he asks, God will give the nations to the king. He'll give the nations to the king as his inheritance and his possession. And God also says that the king will be able to judge the world and has the power to destroy it. So the conversation or the director's commentary tell us that the king is God's son The king owns and rules the whole world, and the king will judge the world. So, who is the king? Well, historically, yes, it is David. But in an eternal sense, David doesn't fully fit the description. David isn't literally and truly God's son. And as far as we know, David didn't own the whole world. I don't think the Aztecs ever knew about David. And I don't think the Chinese people ever got invaded by the Jews. See, the eternal king that Psalm 2 is talking about is Jesus. The Apostle Paul puts it another way uh, in Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15, where Paul speaks about God's son who is king. And Paul says this about God's son who is king. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn Over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the one who is God's Son. He has inherited the nations, he owns the whole world, and he sits in judgment over the whole world. So when it comes to sexuality, this means that I got it wrong. I am not in control of my sexuality. I can't demand control of sex by looking at porn. 
because Jesus is king of my sexuality. And the king's view of sexuality is best. I've learned in the years that followed to hunger for a godly view of sex, no matter how bad my world gets. And this means that you've got it wrong too. You have wanted control of your sexuality too. And it's time to repent and turn away. You've been keeping up the facade of being a good person on the outside and yet underneath the facade, you rage against the king when it comes to control of your sexuality. But you need to hunger for the king when it comes to your sexuality. You need to hunger for the king no matter how bad our world's view of sexuality gets. You see, see, Jesus is the king of every area of our lives and that means that Jesus controls our sexuality as much as any other area of our lives. God's king is Jesus and Jesus is supreme in everything. So doing a quick recap on what we've covered so far in Psalm 2. First three verses, we've looked at how we are rebelling against God and his anointed king. Then we've seen that God has put Jesus in control. And from verses 7, 8 and 9, we know that Jesus rules the whole world as supreme king with authority to judge it. And it hits us with a simple message. We need to hunger for the king no matter how bad our world gets. But knowing about our own sexual failures, how do we respond? How will you hunger for the king? Well, we're given a great outline of how to respond to Jesus in the last three verses. Verses 10, 11 and 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The last three verses are where the writer draws together all the tensions that have been opening up in this psalm. He draws together the tension between God and the people. And he draws together the tension between the king and the people. It shows majestically how Jesus is the king who resolves and restores all things. It shows how Jesus puts all things right. And finally, in the last line, Psalm 2 shows us how people who hunger for the king will be truly blessed. So, how should we hunger for the king? Well, there's two important things to remember. We need to be wise and we need to be warned. Let's start with a warning. In verse 12, we're told to submit to the son lest he be angry. Be warned, people, that Jesus is serious when he says he will judge the world. Be warned that Jesus has been given authority over all nations, all, all peoples, all tribes, all tongues, all places. And that means you. Psalm 2 reminds us to take sin seriously. Psalm 2 reminds us that Jesus is not kidding when he says things like his words in Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man, that's Jesus, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So if you haven't given your sexuality to Jesus yet, time is running out. Please don't think you can keep going in rebellion against the king. Jesus will judge people who rebel against him sexually. 
And if this is you, then it's time to turn away from your sexual sin and repent. It's time to turn away from ungodly sexual behaviour and it's time to turn away from sex outside of marriage. Not because I told you to. Not even because your mother told you to. It's because Jesus tells you to. Jesus is the king who owns the world. And finally, we hear the wise response to God's king in verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in the king. This phrase is the high point of the psalm. Remember how we said that Psalm 1 and 2 are a combo deal? And they set up the whole book of psalms? Well, the whole point of these two psalms is that people would be blessed by God by taking refuge in his king. Taking refuge in the king is the goal. The big idea of Psalms is that people can take refuge in the king. People who do this will avoid the judgment that's coming on the nations and they'll be blessed. It's like a double whammy. The people of the king can have their cake and eat it too. But what does it mean for us to take refuge in the king? Well, once again, we'll turn to Colossians chapter 1 for a bit more insight. Colossians 1 and verse 19. Speaking of the king again. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the fullness of God. Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is God. And through the cross, Jesus has reconciled us to himself. He's done two things at the cross. He's defeated sin and he's made peace for us with God. As Nina Simone once sang, the king is dead. But she didn't sing that he lives again. And his death and his life allow us to take refuge in him. So when it comes to sex we can be confident that Jesus has made peace for us with God at the cross. This means that our sin has been paid for by his blood. The guilt and the shame we feel when we sin sexually can only be cleansed by Jesus. The dirtiness that that we have after we've done something wrong can only be taken away by the blood of Jesus at the cross. He's big enough. He's strong enough. Jesus can bear our sin and he can take away the shame He's big enough and strong enough because he is God. See, looking back on where I've been over the past few years, I can only really say, thank you for the cross. All the sexual sin I've committed would pile up like a mountain and fall on me and destroy me if it wasn't for the fact that I can take refuge in Jesus, that Jesus gave his life to pay for it instead. And if it wasn't for the cross, I'd have nowhere to turn to find forgiveness for my sin. And the same goes for you. If it wasn't for the cross, your sin would pile up like a mountain and would fall on you and destroy you too. But Jesus gave his life to take away your sin and make peace for you with God. The king died for you. And this only leaves you with one option. And that is to turn from your sexual sin and turn to the cross of Christ where you can find forgiveness. 
Turn to the cross where your sin has been defeated and turn to the cross where you have peace with God. Take refuge in the King and you will be blessed. Psalm 2 leaves us with a lot to think about. But the big point is that we are blessed. And we take refuge in the King no matter how hard our world gets. Our sexuality is blessed when it matches up to what the King wants. Sex is blessed when it is expressed in marriage. And we can take refuge in the King to find this blessing because the King gave his life for us. If Psalm 2 has spoken to you tonight, please pray and ask God to reveal how you should respond. You may need to go home tonight and get down on your knees and cry out to God for forgiveness for something you've done. Please listen also to the warning. Jesus is serious about sexuality. Please don't walk away from this thinking you can deal with sexual sin on your own and that it will just go away. Please don't ignore the warning because the king takes sin seriously. And this week, please talk to someone you trust and pray with them about what we've looked at tonight. Please don't sweep this under the carpet. Please investigate ways you can be helped in your sexuality. You might like to think about talking to your small group leader. You might like to talk, think about talking to an older Christian you trust. Or you might like to think about doing a course like Man to Man next term. No matter how bad our world gets, we can take refuge in the King. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we come before you tonight as your people and we confess that we rage against you, that we have been guilty of seeking to control, that we have been guilty of seeking to be the ones who are in charge, that we have been guilty of raging against you and that one of the ways this has been expressed is in our sexuality. And we ask for your forgiveness tonight, God. We ask for your forgiveness for our sin. And we rejoice that you've installed your king in Zion, that you've given everything to the king, that the king sits in authority over everything, the king sits in authority over our sexuality, and the king will judge all things. And we rejoice that you are the king, Jesus. So as we listen to the warning, as we listen to the warning not to ignore you because your wrath and your anger can flare up, we pray that we will be people who do not ignore the warning. We pray that we will be people who seek to take refuge in the King. And Lord, as we hear from you in Psalm 2, we pray that your refuge, will, uh, you will show mercy and you will guard us and that you will forgive us and that the refuge you provide in Christ at the cross is good enough for us. And we praise you because you've done this. And we look forward as your people to the day when we will meet the King. Until then, we look forward to living for the King. We look forward to victory over sin through your victory at the cross. And day by day, we'll walk in your ways and we'll seek to have your view of sexuality. God, we thank you for giving us a way to take refuge in the King. We thank you for coming to us to allow us
take refuge in the King. We will pray that we will be people who hunger after God, no matter how bad our world gets. And we pray this giving thanks for the King. Amen.